0: Good morning. Happy Father's Day. It's an honor to get to open the Word with you this morning. And I just want to thank you all at WCC for receiving my family and I over the last few months. It's been an honor to get to know the church body here. And to really move from one Crossway Church in Tacoma, Washington to another has been a, a great blessing. This network is amazing. It's, it's so cool to see what God's doing in and through the people of Crossway. And to get to plug into such a like-minded Christ-exalting church has been a blessing for every one of us in the Breffel family. After I graduated from college, I joined the military, and I served in the 2nd Ranger Battalion from 2005 through 2011. When I first got to battalion, I had a squad leader who, he was an old-school ranger. He was, he was pretty crusty. He was pretty rough. He wanted to, to make the best rangers. He, he ran a tight ship. He ensured that we were always doing the right thing. And he had and expected the very best from every ranger under him. Every two weeks on Friday afternoon when the other squads would start to ramp down for the week and they might play Xbox in their squad room, he would call us into our squad room. He'd close the door, he'd hand us our night vision devices, and he would make us give each other IVs in the pitch dark. Every time this happened the entire squad down to the man, including me, would grumble against our leader. This was a painful exercise that would always end in a bunch of guys emerging from the dark with bruised, bloody arms. And the suffering we would endure would cause us anger and resentment towards our leader week in and week out. None of us saw the necessity to endure such suffering in the moment. To us, it seemed like wasted time that would never prove beneficial, and it was simply our leader trying to toughen us up like he was. That was until three years later, on April 26, 2009. I was now a team leader, and we landed on an objective in the cover of darkness and began taking enemy fire from every direction. Within 30 seconds of landing, one of the guys on my team got shot in the abdomen and was bleeding out profusely. I was closest to him. As I got him behind cover and I addressed his wound and I waited for the medics to fight their way to us, I knew he needed fluids as soon as possible if he was going to live. But I was in the pitch black wearing night vision goggles. In a moment, I saw that the suffering and the discipline that my old squad leader put me through was going to pay off. He really did have a purpose for that discipline. It was to make us the best rangers we could be. And one day, one of us might need to rely on that training as much suffering as it caused to save one of our brothers' lives. I wonder how many of you look at the discipline and suffering in your life the same way. When confronted with suffering, whether it's brought about by your own personal sin, the sin of others, or maybe the circumstances that seem completely outside your control, what's the posture? of your heart as you respond to suffering in your life. You find yourself grumbling, like we did, against our leader, wondering why God would allow this to happen. Maybe it's anger and bitterness, putting God on the witness stand, demanding that he answer every one of your accusatory questions. Maybe suffering causes you to wonder what you've done wrong and wonder why God would be withholding his love from you wonder if you ever feel alone in your suffering, discombobulated by it, not even knowing up from down. All of these responses to the difficult, painful parts of our race cause us to grow weary, don't they? I imagine every one of us can think of moments in our life when the, when the Christian race becomes too much, when the blisters and fatigue of life push us to the brink of exhaustion when you're knee deep in mud, suffering in the moment and the thought of taking one more step seems impossible. This was the situation the audience of Hebrews found themselves in. And the author has written this section of scripture to encourage them and us to see that every bit of suffering we face in the Christian race is transformed by the cross. And that suffering can only be rightly understood when we see it as God's fatherly, kind, wise discipline teaching us, refining us, and giving us endurance to continue running. Like my squad leader in the army, God knows what he's doing through his discipline, and it always has an outcome and benefit that is for our good and for his glory. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Roadmap for When the Race Gets Hard. As we walk through Hebrews 12, 3 3 through 17, we're going to see that the author desires for us to not only understand but believe four things that will keep runners from growing weary and faint-hearted when we encounter suffering on the race course set before us. First, he wants us to consider Jesus' suffering. Consider the suffering that Jesus endured. Second, he wants us to remember that we are sons and daughters. Third, he calls us to receive the Father's loving discipline. And finally, he commands us to respond by running the race, to get back out on the course, to keep moving forward. And So that's a, the path we're going to take this morning. If you're a note taker, you can write those down. Consider, remember, receive, and respond. But before we jump into the text, would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you have given us the word that, that we might know you that we might see your character and your nature that you're good and kind and patient that you have what's best for us and lord through your word we know what life is like we see that it's it's marked by trouble and tribulation that we endure suffering in this life but your word reveals to us that we need not fear we need not withdraw that we can trust you in the moments of suffering. And so, God, would you transform us through your word this morning? Would you draw us to yourself? Give us a greater dependence upon you through the power of the Spirit as we consider our Savior Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Two weeks ago, Pastor Dan walked us through Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, which is a call from the author of Hebrews to his audience to recognize the christian life as an ultra marathon a race that's long and often arduous right the call for believers who are who are running the race is to keep their eyes fixed on jesus the one who's gone before us and is waiting at the finish line seated at the right hand of god wooing us to himself calling us in to continue running encouraging us to finish the race with endurance but what happens when the race gets difficult? What happens when the course set before you is marked with suffering? How's the follower of Jesus to respond and endure in the face of hardship and suffering on that leg of the race? That's what the author is laying out before us today in Hebrews 12. So as we jump into the text this morning, we need to, to remember some of the context, some of what's come before this chapter in the book of Hebrews, so we know what's going on here this morning. Remember The recipients of this letter are in the midst of some serious suffering. Suffering to such an extent that the author recognizes that weariness and faint-heartedness are real possible outcomes. And they're getting it from all sides. The unbelievers around them are persecuting them for believing and following the way of Jesus. They're threatening their lives and it says that they're ransacking their property. They're contemplating how it might be easier to fall back into the old religion of the Jews. They're being tempted to slip back into the synagogue, pick up the religious rituals of their former days, but they're getting hit from their Jewish counterparts as well. They wouldn't be welcomed back into that community. So they're facing suffering and persecution from that side too. They had abandoned the old faith. They'd given up on Moses and Abraham, if you will. So they they had it bad. The author recognizes that. But in the midst of their suffering, he calls them to not look inward. He calls them to to not consider the the suffering that they're going through. He calls them to consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility himself. Look down at verse 3. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. So, what's the author calling his audience to consider? He's calling them to consider the suffering that Jesus had endured. As we run the Christian ultra marathon, when we encounter suffering on different legs of the race, it can cause us to feel discombobulated. We can feel alone like we're the only ones this has ever happened to. I run ultra marathons, and I remember in my first ultra at mile 60, I started throwing up. I couldn't keep any foods or liquids in my body. But thankfully, I'd read and studied a lot of past ultra runners. I read about things that I should expect, and one thing that I knew would come at about 12, 12 or 13 hours in, my body could easily start rejecting the fuel that I was trying to give it. If I hadn't considered the ones who went before me, if I hadn't known that was to be expected, you can imagine, I could have panicked on the race course. I could have thrown in the towel thinking I'm doing irreparable damage to my body, or at least it could have thrown me off by what was happening. And so this is why the author is calling his audience to consider Jesus. This word consider is an accounting term. He's calling them to consider deeply, to to reckon, to, to bring sense to what they see in Jesus' life, the reality that their Savior had endured such hostility and suffering that it cost him his life. And so as the author encourages them, uh, as, as they take this tally, as they, as they add up all that Jesus had endured, as they, as they reckoned all the suffering that Jesus had received, as they realized that, that they were walking the road, they were Running the race that Jesus had run, they might not grow weary or faint hearted. That they would actually see that this would be expected as they followed the way of their Savior. And there's something powerful about looking back, particularly in difficult moments of life, knowing that you're not alone, knowing you're not the only one that has walked this path, knowing that the saints before you had suffered in similar ways. Remember chapter 13, or I mean chapter 11 that your Savior had walked the same road you now find yourself on. This consideration of Jesus was meant to give them fortitude. It was meant to bolster their confidence, to strengthen their resolve. It was meant to reorient them to, to the way of the race, to remind them they weren't crazy or alone, but that they were enduring the way that Jesus had ran the race also. The call is to consider Jesus. Because as they did, they would recognize he was the one who had endured suffering to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Verse 4 says, in their struggle against sin, they had not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed. But Jesus. Jesus had suffered to death. The Hebrew suffering was real, but it hadn't ended in their bloodshed yet. It hadn't ended in the giving of their lives. And so he calls them, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility that it resulted in his bloodshed, that it ended in the giving of his life. But we have to ask ourselves a question here. As good students of the Bible, verse 4 poses a question we must deal with. Whose sin are the Hebrews struggling with? Not theirs. It's, their, it's the sin of others. This isn't a a struggle against their own sin. This isn't the the mortification of their own sinful nature and desires. This is the struggle against sin of those around them. And we can think about this, right? The, The struggle against our own sin does not bring bloodshed. The Bible never talks in those terms. And so the struggle and suffering that they were enduring was at the violent hands of others. And here's the reality, friends. In a broken world, Christ's followers will endure suffering at the hands of those around them. The sinfulness and the brokenness of those around us will spill over and it will press into us and it will cause suffering and it can be painful and it's hard at times, but it was the way of Jesus. This is the call to consider Him. As we struggle against sin, we are walking. The way of Jesus. We are running the race he has run, but it's not futile. This race, this suffering is not for nothing. This suffering is not pointless or aimless. Like the IV training I had to endure that brought about suffering, there was a good reason. There was an end that was going to be accomplished. There was a a purpose in my squad leader's training, and this purpose in the moments when our race become insufferable when this others brings about suffering, is the good of God's people and the glory of him alone. And so for us to grow this morning, for us to endure in the face of suffering, to have our our faith expanded, to to consider Jesus at the finish line calling us in, we have to understand that this suffering is a gift from God. A gift. Not crazy saying that. I think we can see, though painful at times, this suffering is a gift. Look at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, this is not an easy thought here. This isn't an easy verse in Scripture. Can we, can we just be honest with one another for a moment? The Scriptures just said that the sinful acts of others that is causing God's people to suffer was ultimately whose act? God's. What the author is saying is he quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 is that the sin that is happening out there and is pressing in on us, causing us trouble, bringing difficulty and suffering, that's from God. That's a a hard reality. Does anyone else struggle with that, or is it just me? Why? Why does this happen? Why why does God do this? What, What are we supposed to do with this reality? The beauty of this passage is God doesn't leave us alone with those questions. He answers that question for us. And so, first the author calls us to consider Jesus in the midst of our suffering. Considering Jesus reorients us. It it sets us upright and allows us to recognize we're not crazy. We're not on an island. We're not alone in the struggle against the sin of others in the race. It, It actually brings our head above the clouds, makes sense of what we're experiencing. But second, as God answers this question about suffering, he calls us to remember called us to consider Jesus, and now he calls us to remember. Remember that we are sons and daughters. The author's already alluded to it in his quoting of Proverbs 3, but he expands on this idea of us being sons and daughters of God in verses 7 and 8. Read it. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. When we're faced with a leg of the Christian race that is wrought with pain and suffering, we have to be reminded that we are sons and daughters of God. We have a Father who loves and cares for us, and the evidence of that love at times is the discipline that we receive through suffering. Now, we're going to talk more about how suffering we face in this world is God's loving discipline in a moment. But remember, we are sons and daughters. Knowing that is crucial for us to understand as we head into that part of the passage. And so if you're in Christ, if you have put your faith and allegiance in King Jesus, then you're not only forgiven of your sin, freed from the power and guilt that sin brings, but you are a beloved, cherished son and daughter of the King. This is the beauty of the multifaceted diamond that is the gospel. Think, if, if we looked at the gospel and it, it had all of these faces like a diamond that teach us and tell us about the, the accomplishing and sufficient work of Christ, we would look at one face and we, we bring the little jeweler's microscope into that diamond, right? And we, we look at the face that theologians call justification, That is this reality that in Christ we have been declared not guilty in the divine court of law. But as we turn that diamond and you inspect another face, you get to see another court proceeding occurs. This time, though, it's not in the court of law, it takes place in family court. And in this courtroom, the judge isn't declaring you not guilty. He's making the declaration that by way of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, you are adopted into the family of God. The judge looks at you and says, you are a forever child by law of God. You're no longer an orphan, but a beloved, cherished, delighted in son or daughter. Sin breaks relationship. Sin separates things that are supposed to be together. And in our sin, we are separated from the love of God. We're orphans, or as the author of Hebrews says, illegitimate children. But the beauty of the gospel is that we are saved from something. The penalty, shame, guilt, and separation from God. But we are also saved to something. And we're saved into the family of God through Jesus Christ you've not put your faith in Christ, if you've not had God declare you not guilty, forgiving you of your sin and making you a new creation, if you've not been adopted into the family of God through your trust and allegiance to Jesus, I would encourage you this morning, consider the claims of Christ. He's inviting you to trust in him. And if you have any questions about what that means, please come find me after this service. Find Pastor Dan or any of the other pastors or elders at WCC. Talk to someone after the service because we would love to walk with you in that way this morning. The gospel declares that we are sons and daughters of God. This is so important for us to understand, church family. I think many of us believe this in our heads. But we fail to live it out on the street levels of our lives when life gets hard. Too often when suffering comes, when we face trials and tribulations, we forget that we are sons and daughters, and we revert back to this mindset of being orphans. We can link suffering to the absence of God. We, we think that if I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, God must not be there. We conclude that God is aloof or distant to our suffering, but the reality is, as sons and daughters, God is most near to us. Hear me on this. God is most near to us in the moments of our suffering. Dane Ortland, the author of a book called Gentle and Lowly, gets to this point beautifully. Because we are sons and daughters adopted into the family of God, Ortland says this contrary to what we expect to be the case the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. Because God is our loving Father, the deeper the suffering, the nearer he is to us as sons and daughters. My oldest son and I were on a hike a while back, and it was was the longest, hardest hike he'd been on. He was... Seven or eight years old at the time and towards the end, mile six or seven, he was suffering pretty bad. He was tired, his legs and feet hurt, he was questioning if he could go on. Now friends, what do you think my posture was to him as his dad in his moments of suffering? Did I withdraw from him in that moment? Do you think I just kept charging on ahead, leaving him behind me, hoping that he'd navigate the way through his suffering? No. No. I was closer to him in those moments of suffering than I was the whole hike. When it was easy, when we were on top of the mountain, we shared the trail, and I was there present with him. But when the going got tough, he had tears in his eyes. He was suffering. I started walking right beside him. I held his hand. I reminded him how much I loved him, how proud I was of him for enduring. I was closer in his suffering than I was at any time on that hike, and that's the posture of our Father in heaven, too. We run this race as sons and daughters. We must hear loud and clear this morning, particularly in our moments of suffering, our God is with us. He is for us, and He is a constant, loving companion. Remember, we are sons and daughters in Christ. Now, there are a lot of things that I wish I could stand up here and tell you this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, I know there are a lot of things that all the pastors of of WCC wish that they could come up here on a Sunday morning and tell you that the Bible just won't allow. And one of those things that I wish I could tell you, and I'm sure that, that the pastors wish they could tell you is that there would not be any suffering in your life i would love it if i could stand up here this morning and tell you that because of your faith and desire to follow jesus life is going to be easy that there won't ever be any hardship i'd be far more popular if that was the message i could bring to you this morning i wish i could tell you that there wouldn't be suffering or sin that you'll never get sick or hurt or cry or feel betrayed. I wish I could tell you all of those things, but I would not be telling you what Jesus tells us in his word. Jesus said in John 16 in this world there will be tribulation. There will be suffering. This race will be marked with hardship. the Bible is very clear that the way of Christ is marked with trials, tribulations, and suffering. And I know many of you are keenly aware of this. Some of you have experienced intense oppression and agony from friends and family and the communities you live in for your faith. Some of you are walking the painful road of cancer. Some of you are enduring marriages that feel more like a battlefield than a loving home. Some of you have even been hurt in the name of Christ. And though none of these things are right... And none of these things are the way it's supposed to be. Jesus has said believers are not exempt. In fact, we may be more prone to the brokenness of this world. And so Hebrews twelve three through 17 is the balm of the gospel that Jesus massages into our heart in the reality of a broken world. This is not a passage that, that promises a trouble-free race, But thankfully, it does promise the gracious sovereignty of God over the troubles, sufferings, and evils that God's people experience. For us to endure the race before us, particularly when this race gets hard, we need to receive our suffering as the Father's loving discipline. This is our third point on the roadmap for when the race gets hard. Receive the Father's loving discipline. This was why it was so important for us to remember as as we consider the discipline the father gives that we're sons and daughters, because the discipline that we're now going to look at flows out of, it flows out of a father's heart bent towards his children. Read verses 9 through 11 with me. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. This is an unpopular message in America in 2022, isn't it? We're not a culture that values discipline, particularly when that discipline comes from outside of ourselves. We live in an autonomous age where the thought of someone else disciplining me does not go over very well. Anyone just love their HOA, right? There are some things we need to see, though, about the Father's loving discipline that will help us understand it as a gracious, sovereign gift. First, we need to understand what the author means by discipline. We need to wrestle with this word this morning. For many of us, we read discipline and think punishment, right? We read discipline and we think punishment. But the author of Hebrews is not saying that the suffering his audience is enduring or experiencing at the hands of sinful people was the punishment of God. There's no, nothing in the text that would make us think that. So what is he saying? If discipline is not punishment, what is it? Discipline in this context is training. It's education. It's refinement. My squad leader in the army was not punishing us by giving each other IVs. He was was disciplining us, right? He was training us for the moment when we would need to be better, stronger, and more equipped for what we would face on the battlefield. And this is the very thought the author is making. In fact, at the end of verse 11, look at it with me. He says, the outcome of discipline, which we're going to get to in a moment, comes to those who've been what? Trained by it. That word is the word gymnasio, where we get our word gymnasium, the place we train. There's this idea that what the Lord is doing in the midst of our suffering is like what a skilled coach does in the gymnasium. A good coach knows the limits of his athletes, and he pushes them to the brink of that limit, often under grueling conditions, knowing it's when the muscles and cells come under pressure that they grow. And our loving Father knows those limits better than any coach. And the suffering we endure in our Christian lives is used by him to train us. Not to punish us, but to train us, to build us up. That's the discipline the author's pointing us to in this passage. But notice, he makes another analogy in this passage, doesn't he? He likens the disciplines we experience in our suffering to that of the discipline we receive from our earthly fathers. Happy Father's Day. He says we've had earthly fathers that disciplined us, and we respected them. He goes on to say that our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. It points to the second idea of discipline that we need to understand. As well-intentioned as our earthly fathers are in their discipline, they make mistakes. They discipline with wrong motives at times. They discipline out of anger or get the timing of the discipline all wrong, but our heavenly father disciplines perfectly. Our heavenly father always disciplines for our good, It's never out of anger. It's never out of resentment. As the omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe, our Father knows the beginning from the end. He knows what the next leg of our race holds for us. He knows the weakness of our minds and spirit. He knows where our faith needs bolstered, and he lovingly disciplines and trains us for our eternal good. His discipline is perfect in its timing, duration, and severity. That means, friends, if you're suffering in your race right now, you will not suffer one moment longer than God knows is right. We can find peace knowing that the sin we're experiencing from those around us or the broken effects of a fallen world will not touch you for a second longer than God knows we need to bring about his perfect intended purpose. That means if you're in the valley, if you're walking through the fire, Know that your father is sovereign over the duration, timing, and severity of that suffering. And he's for you, not against you. Now dads, I want to address us this morning on Father's Day. This is a passage that can either be of great encouragement to us, or if we're honest, could leave us here walking in shame. There may be some of us, and I imagine every one of us, if we're honest, who who look back on the ways that we've disciplined our children. And I'm on the front of the line on this. And we see ways we've missed the mark. Maybe disciplining out of anger. Maybe disciplining our kids more towards punishment than training. But I think the encouragement here is twofold. First, we have an example. We have an example in this passage of what the right fatherly discipline looks like. Our aim as dads is to train up our children for their eternal good. Our aim is to emulate our Heavenly Father, disciplining in each moment with the right pressure, with the right motive, with the right duration, at the right timing. And then the second encouragement, and and the one I think we need to hear most, is there is now no condemnation for us dads who are in Christ Jesus. As a son of God, you, dad, have a heavenly father who wants to discipline and train you through the discipline and training of your children. And so if you've not done that perfectly up to this point, I would encourage you this morning, trust in the loving kindness of your father. Trust in the finished work of Christ. Repent and turn of your past actions and Run towards Jesus in your parenting. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Dan gave us an exhortation to, to run with a pacer, right? To run with someone next to you, encouraging you, reminding you of the truths, spurring you on to good works. And dads, I would encourage you, run with a pacer, I don't know an area of my life where I couldn't use a brother who's, who's maybe gone further in the race than I have, who's, who's parented their children longer than I have, to come alongside me and encourage me and to help me see where I'm, I'm being too hard in some places and maybe being too easy. We're to run the race together, men, and I would encourage you, find a pacer to run with you in your parenting, to encourage you to discipline the way our Heavenly Father disciplines because we have a specific race as dads, and God has given you other men to run with. Amen. So we see the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father is training, not punishment. It's perfect in its timing, duration, severity, and wisdom. And finally, we see that it has a purpose. And what is the purpose of God's discipline in our suffering? It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. There's a purpose to the disciplining hand of God in the midst of suffering, and the word tells us it's for our good and our holiness. That's what the peaceful fruit of righteousness is, goodness that flows out of our holiness. That's God's intended purpose in this discipline. And Paul says the same thing of God's purpose and discipline in Romans 8.28. And we know, take comfort in that. We know for those who love God, all things to include our suffering, to include the sin of others around us. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So friends, there's deep purpose in our suffering as we understand it to be the loving discipline of God. This is the heart of our Father. He wants what's best for us long-term, eternally, and he will sovereignly use the sin and suffering around us, as unpleasant as it seems in the moment, to bring about his intended purpose. One of my favorite Bible verses is Genesis fifty twenty. This verse comes at the end of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And Joseph was the son of Israel. He was a prideful son who believed that his father loved him more than his other brothers. And under the sovereignty of God, Joseph endured much suffering. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was wrongfully accused of adultery by Pharaoh's wife. He was mistreated in Egypt, but it was all for a purpose, wasn't it? Through all the trials and tribulations, through the suffering that Joseph endured because of the sin of others, he rose to become a humble leader in Egypt that was given the ability to save his family who had become the nation of Israel through a severe famine. And at the end of all this, towards the end of his life, when he's confronted by his brothers, the very ones who sold him into slavery, who he experienced deep sin and suffering through, this is what he says to him in Genesis 50:20, As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the purpose of God's discipline through suffering brought on by sin of others. What others might mean for evil through their sin, the suffering it brings, God means for good, so that peaceful fruits of righteousness might be known and experienced. So far we've, been, we've seen the, the road map for when the race gets hard it has been this call to consider Jesus' suffering, to remember that in Christ you are sons and daughters of the living and holy God, to receive your suffering as loving discipline from our Heavenly Father, and now the final encouragement is to respond by running the race, to keep running, to get back out on the trail. I want you to imagine with me, My physical posture, when my squad leader would call me into that dark room to practice giving IVs. It's pretty mopey, wasn't it? I was grumbling, frustrated. Now, contrast that with my physical posture the next time he called us into that squad room after that gunfight in 2009. When I knew the purpose behind it. When I knew why it was happening, when I knew the fruit that could come from the training that I would experience. That's a picture of what the author's communicating to his audience in this final point. Look at verse 12. Therefore, because we now know what God's doing, therefore, because we know the purpose of this suffering. Therefore, because we are reminded that our God is a heavenly Father who's sovereign and gracious and working all things together for good through your suffering, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. This therefore marks a major shift in his exhortation. The author here in verse 12 transitions from the philosophical general understanding of the Father's loving discipline to now responding to it in the race of life. The author calls his audience to consider, remember, and receive the realities of God's loving discipline so that we might not, as he says in verse 3, grow weary or faint-hearted. Believing God's purpose in our suffering shifts our understanding and affects even our physical posture, the author says. And you can see it, can't you? The runner who's been beaten down who's experiencing all sorts of sin and suffering from outside themselves. They're, de- they're dejected, depressed, and they carry themselves that way. The thought of taking another step, let alone running, is an impossibility. We can think of brothers and sisters in the midst of suffering that are, that are looking this way. But the author is saying, in light of understanding God's purpose in your suffering, lift up your head. Pick up your shoulders. Walk with confidence, knowing that God is working all things together for your good. He's not saying don't lament. He's not saying, don't don't be sad or grieve over what's happening, but he's saying, carry yourself in a way that you know that God is behind it. We can walk knowing God is with us. And to close out this passage, the author concludes with four imperatives or commands that should form the way we run the Christian race, particularly in these moments of suffering. The first imperative, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without you without which no one will see the Lord. This is interesting. In the middle of suffering, at the hands of sinful people around them, they're to strive for peace with everyone and remain holy. This is a word for our current cultural moment. As we look out to a world around us and the sinfulness, and the brokenness of our culture presses in around us, is striving for peace with everyone, marking us as God's people. Is holiness This idea of of a set-apart, loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, generous, faithful, gentle, self-controlled countenance marking us as God's people. Friends, I wonder if we need to be reminded that even those in our culture that are causing our suffering are not our enemies. There's one for sure who stands behind the sin that we feel pressuring us from all sides, and he's the real real enemy, but our neighbors, those who mock our faith, those who vote different than us are not our enemies. If we desire to see those around us that may be causing some of the suffering today in the church come to Christ, and that should be our desire, that even Those who are most hostile towards the faith would come to Christ. We must strive for peace and holiness in our witness. The author is saying, strive for peace with everyone in the midst of your suffering. Those who are causing the suffering, strive for peace and holiness. And then the author closes by stringing together the final three imperatives in verse 15 and 16. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, By it, many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. There's a shift in this series of commands, bringing with it a communal or corporate aspect. Friends, we're called to run this race together. The grace of God is obtained as we run together, experiencing the preaching of God's word in the local assembly of his people, It's experienced through the Christian disciplines that we do in our private and personal lives, and it's living missionally in community together in the places we live, work, learn, and play. See to it that no brother or sister you're running with fails to obtain this grace. Run with them in their suffering. Don't let them withdraw into the shadows and fail to obtain the grace of God when the suffering becomes strong. There's a call to be on guard against a root of bitterness that bears bitter fruit. And it's this root of bitterness that can take over a person's heart. We've seen it. We've seen this root of bitterness take over, and it it can take over a person's heart. It can defile a community. It bears sinful fruit, not righteous fruit. And so the, the exhortation is to run with your brothers and sisters in a way that stands guard against bitterness, call them to consider Jesus in the midst of their suffering, not look at their situation. It calls them to remind, have us remind them that they are beloved sons and daughters fight against the bitterness that comes through suffering. And finally, there's a call to not follow Esau's example where immorality and unholiness caused a son to give up his birthright for a single meal. The immediate instant gratification of a single meal led Esau to trade the promised birthright that was his. And then later in Esau's life, he realized the folly of his decision. He begged for his birthright back, but it was too late. That's what the author says in verse 17. So the call for us is to run with those in our community in a way that reminds them of the eternal promises we have in Christ. Hasn't that been the message of the book of Hebrews? Jesus is better. The promise is better. What's right in front of you Don't give that up for Jesus or give that up for Jesus. Don't try and shortcut your way through the suffering. Don't give up on the promised blessing of what God has for you in this moment. Run with those in our life in a way that keeps them from missing out on the promised blessing God has for them. A couple years ago, I was speaking with an older saint who was going through some painful, serious health issues. He'd been diagnosed with a nerve disorder that would cause debilitating pain through his whole life. And as we were talking one day, I asked him how his inner man was doing. How is he dealing with this painful suffering spiritually? And I'll never forget his response. He looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he said, as painful as this has been, I've never felt as close to Jesus. I do now. I followed Jesus for a long time, he said. And most of the time it's been good. And I loved God. And I trusted in him. But what he's done through this suffering has made his love and care more real than at any other time in my life. This is the purpose of a loving father training us in the midst of our suffering. So may we consider Jesus Remember, we're sons and daughters. Receive his loving discipline. Keep running together towards Jesus, trusting him. Let's pray. Father, the cross transforms our suffering. Who you are in your character and nature as our loving father, as the one who's run the race before us, make sense of what we experience in our lives. So God, I pray for anyone who's walking through the valley of the shadow of death today, that they would be encouraged to know their father's nearer to them now than he ever has been. That they would consider the way of their savior. That he's paved and blazed the trail before us, follow in his way. God, as a community, would we commit to run together, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, speaking the realities of the gospel to one another, that we might not grow weary and faint-hearted. Lord, would you do all of these things in us and through us for our good and for your glory? Jesus name.